What's up, everybody, and welcome to another season of the Boardroom Out of Office podcast. I am Rich Kleiman, and I'm here today with my right-hand man, Gianni Harrell. Gianni, season two, bro. What's up, what's up? Season two, we stepped away for a little while, but you know what? People actually told me that they were missing the pod, like real human beings, man. Did you get any of that? Nah. Damn. That's not a good sign. But I did. I did. I did. I did. Maybe the people listening to our pod are just running in circles similar to mine because I have seen from many people and heard from many people that they actually really enjoy the pod. So we will keep doing this, bro. We're going to keep doing this every other week. Next week, my man KD is back with uh, special guest Charles Barkley. Yeah, that should be tight. That should be tight. But that's what we're doing now. 40 straight weeks every other Wednesday. Me or KD, you, even though none of your people seem to be listening to the pod. <laughs> um, and man, let's keep this thing rolling. I, you notice we got some new intro music this year. Yeah. That's because I, as much as I loved Mass Appeal by Gangstar, I was actually always imagining utilizing Reminisce, Trouble T-Roy to the heads from Pete Rock and CL Smooth as my intro song, but didn't work it out last year. This year we got it. So nostalgic feeling to open every show. And we got a special first show. My God, we are talking to owner, businesswoman, Jeannie Buss of the Los Angeles Lakers. Incredible life she's lived, career. I mean, being a part of the ownership group of the Los Angeles Lakers. Mind you, while we do this whole interview, she's got a G League practice going on right outside her office. Yes, she does. I can see right now she got like 11 trophies lined up, 11 trophies behind her. And that's like nothing. It's not even <laughs> everything. She's just light flexing. But she can't. That's what happens when you win. That's what happens when you win. Um, all right, everybody. Well, I hope everyone had a nice Halloween. Next holiday up Thanksgiving, my favorite. And my birthday, bro. There it is. There it is. Best time of the year. So let's kick off this season two, my brother, my brother. Can't even speak. That's how excited Did you call I am. Me your mother? <laughs> I said my bro, my brother. It was like one long word. That's what happens when you're so excited, bro. Well, let's get this guest on, Jeannie. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. It's nice to meet you. <laughs> it's nice to meet you. And if no one can see the video, and we we will use some video clips from this, you are sitting in front of how many championship trophies? Um, well, technically, there's 11 here, um, but you can't. I can't, couldn't get them all in the shot, so <laughs> I guess that's what that's what we call a humble brag. They're just a beautiful backdrop, and um, you it know, is. they're really the inspiration for how we designed our training center because the the trophies, while they're here in my office, they're also um, from the court you can always see them, you can visualize, you know, this was something that was important to Phil Jackson, that the, the players always be reminded what the journey is about and what the goal is. And so the trophies overlook the practice court. That's something, Gianni, that only the Lakers, maybe the Celtics, Patriots, but very few teams could tell their designer that the theme is to keep the championship trophies in view at all, po at all times. But very impressive. Um, so you grew up in L.A., right? 
uh, born and raised in LA. So that's, you know, kind of unusual for LA. We're, we're a very a transient city. So, uh, you know, we bring in all crossroads of people, but I was born and raised, went to school here. And your family was in real estate growing up? Yes, um, the the family business um, was real estate development, so apartment buildings, commercial development, um, hotels. That is where my father, Dr. Jerry Buss, um, made his fortune was in real estate and using his mathematical mind um, in you know knowing how to finance and you know create wealth that way, but certainly. Southern California real estate in the 60s and 70s kind of made it easy to, uh, um, you know, grow his wealth quickly. Was your dad, even when he was in real estate, was he always this kind of like bigger than life character? Did he always have those cool ass glasses on? Yes. <laughs> yes. Very similar to those. Um, he um, had definitely had his own style. And what was important to him was, uh, you know, because you know, he, he received his PhD from USC at the age of 23 in chemical, uh, physical chemistry, chemical engineering. And uh, he went uh, straight to work for an aerospace company that had a dress code. And he quickly realized that dress codes were not for him. And so, you know, he really kind of doubled down on the whole casual blue jeans um, you know, I, I'm going to dress the way I want to dress, not for what people want me to do. And, you know, that's the kind of thinker he was. And ahead of his time, because people like me now only have sweatpants in our closet. Uh, he, he would love He would love uh, today's uh, casual lifestyle. He would really yes. So you're, you're a very uh, successful businesswoman. And I know that people that come from successful parents sometimes get a bad reputation because people think that it's a cakewalk, but it's quite the contrary. And at times there's harder uh, obstacles and a door can open, but that doesn't mean anything unless you know how to enter and you know what to do when you get in there. Um, so I would imagine you had dreams as a kid before when your parents were in real estate, what was young Jeannie Buss like? What was that fantasy as a child? Uh, for me, it was always to work in the family business. Um, I was fascinated with, uh, with what my dad did. I was the kind of kid that would sneak into his meetings, you know, maybe, you know, hey, Jay, go, go grab me a Coke from the, the refrigerator. And I'd do that. And, and I would sit and stay in the meeting. Just it, it, everything was interesting to me. Um, what he did and, you know, kind of his vision. And, and he, he had uh, aspirations of being a teacher someday. And, you know, when he was growing up, so he had the ability to explain things and break things down really well. So even at a young age, you know, he would say, oh, you're curious about this? Let me explain it to you. And at, at whatever level he needed to, to make it interesting to me. So, you know, he, he was grooming me to be part of the business, you know, when I was, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old. That's cool. You know, it's funny you say that because people think that like super successful people are long winded and they love to give a lot of context because they understand exactly what they have to tell you for you to get it. And that means that they have to give you all the color around it. And then you usually get great storytellers out of that. So I imagine your dad was probably an amazing storyteller. Amazing storyteller, very, 
very well said. And he was a wonderful teacher, a wonderful mentor. And, um, you know, when I was a senior in high school was when he bought not only the, the Los Angeles Lakers, but the NHL uh, Kings hockey team and the arena that they played in. So all of a sudden, you know, he took his, his wealth and pivoted from real estate into sports and entertainment. So then that became the focus of the family business. So dad says, Jeannie, get the kids, get your siblings. I have to talk to you about something. Come down to the table and you're 17. You think you're going into real estate. You're in Southern California. And dad says, I sold it all. We're in this new family business now. And what is the whole family's reaction? Were you guys sports fans? Were you Laker fans? You know what? You're, you're so funny because you're, you're so spot on in this conversation. <laughs> It, it basically was he called the kids together and he said, could you imagine if you could go see the Rolling Stones and you could sit in the front row to whatever show came to the forum, how would you like that? So it's like, yes. He goes, actually, you could even stand on the stage if you want to. What? Yes, that would be so much fun. Well, guess what? You know, basically I bought the forum, I bought the basketball team, I bought a hockey team. And, you know, when you're a kid, it's like all you can think about is like going to see Rod Stewart or Elton John at the forum. And, you know, certainly I, I played basketball in high school and I was actually the scorekeeper for the, the boys basketball team. So I love basketball too. That must have been just like next level excitement in the family. I think now, now, nowadays it's the opposite. The kids are telling their father from the time they realize that they have money to go buy an NBA team. It's the total opposite. But back then, that was probably pretty shocking and something, though, that needed a vision, right? In order to buy something in Los Angeles, California, that had had success and had had star players, you probably had to have a vision for what you were doing. And I imagine that the entertainment side of things, which was one of his calling cards, was a big part of it, right? Um, what was kind of like, what do you remember was the state of the Lakers at 17 years old? That was 1979, right? What was the state of the Lakers at that point and the state of the NBA in general? Um, you know, uh, the the Lakers had Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and, you know, we're, we're you know, competitive, but not obviously winning championships. So now imagine, you know, in May of 79, my dad buys the team that owns the number one draft pick. So in June, and he clearly knew who he wanted to draft. A lot of the the, the people that worked for him uh, were suggesting that Sidney Moncrief would be a better draft pick at that time. Um, you know, it was unheard of for an underage classman, a 19-year-old, to declare for the draft. What happened was uh, back then they used to have what was called a hardship rule. So you had to apply, um, you know, that, that there was a, a hardship involved and then you could turn pro. So, um, you know, basketball people weren't used to drafting 19-year-olds. They liked the safer bet of a 22-year-old that you knew, you know, that they were going to grow into their body or that they were going to be mature players. 
Um, but my dad, you know, he when he saw Magic Johnson play in the NCAA finals that year, he knew Magic was the player that that was going to lead the team the way he wanted to, a flashy player that played with passion and joy. And, you know, for him, the, what was really important was that he felt he, he loved the city of Los Angeles. He wasn't born in L.A. He was born in Wyoming, grew up in Wyoming. But as soon as he could get out, he, he wanted to move to L.A. And L.A. embraced him. And he obviously made a lot of money. And he wanted to do something for L.A. And he felt that there was a bias towards L.A. teams in the national media. That nobody really cared about what happened you know, three time zones over, that everything was about the Knicks or the 76ers or, of course, the Boston Celtics. So he wanted the team to rival those East Coast teams. And, um, you know, he, he had a vision of what he wanted to bring, um, you know, to make the Lakers uh, exciting, dynamic, and, you know, there, as as they be, went on to be called the Showtime Lakers, because literally what my dad wanted it to be was, you know, when the, sh the show started, it was Showtime, and we were going to knock your socks off. That's really what he wanted. You know, Sidney Moncrief owes your dad, because he had a really nice career, but had he been drafted ahead of Magic Johnson, he would forever be the guy drafted ahead of Magic Johnson. That's and a really good <laughs> Thank you. It's true. I mean, but you he know, there, you was, there, there was no talking my dad out of magic. That, that was for sure. And of course, you know, my dad had never met magic and you know, how, how he could have such good intuition. That's another thing that made him such a great businessman. He had an intuition about people. It made him a great poker player too, because he could <laughs> read the table, but, um, certainly, um, you know, magic. Once he met magic, it was like these were soulmates. These were two people that just came together and, you know, complemented each other in terms of, you know, who they were. And, and for my dad being the teacher, here was a student that wanted to learn about the game and learn about business. And, you know, my dad was a, a, a a willing teacher so it was it was really a special relationship i had dinner with i had never met magic before um and i had dinner and kevin duran had never really spent that much time with magic and he called me maybe two weeks before we had dinner with him and said i i want to spend time with magic can the two of us have dinner and just hang with him and we went and had early dinner with him, which was great. He wanted an early dinner, which I didn't want to admit I did too, but nothing better than someone <laughs> wanting to meet you at 630. Um, so we met him and beyond the fact that like, and this is probably old news to you, but to a New Yorker like me that never had a chance to meet him, he really is pretty magical in person. Like it's, I, however the nickname came about, there's so much truth to it because it's an odd thing that exudes out of him that... You know, I really wanted to learn and take in as much as I could during that meal because I could run into him a hundred times more, but I didn't have two dedicated hours to talk to him. And I grew up, I was born in the late 70s and I grew up 80s and 90s basketball. So I instantly went to that period. And he talked about your father as if um, he had just met him the night before with that kind of excitement and talked about 
you know, the, the dynamic the two of them had, the things that he taught him and exposed him to. And then they ranged from anything from like a one-liner about something so simple, like an everyday chore and how you should go about it, to an overarching like philosophy on people. Um, but you and him were the same age when he was drafted. So was there a, a relationship the two of you kind of also formed right off the bat or a certain connection you guys had? Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and thank you for sharing that story. I, I love hearing things like that. And, you know, magic, I, I think the word charisma is what, there's something about him. He's like a Pied Piper. People, you yeah. them, people just want to be around them. Yes, you know, I was 17 and magic was 19. And I'll never forget the first day I met him. You know, I was uh, living with my dad in his house on Beverly Glen in Bel Air. And um, back then, the draft was literally you're sitting at home and they call you and they say, hey, you were drafted number one, get on an airplane to, you know, wherever you were going. So, um, you know, he got on a plane, flew out to Los Angeles, and um, he, uh, Bill Sharman, the our general manager um, brought him over. And when the doorbell rang, my dad said, you know what? Like, I'm not ready yet. I got to do a couple things upstairs. Will you bring them in the house, offer them something to drink, and I'll be down in a few minutes. So, you know, make conversation. So I opened the door and it was this smile that just, it was like blinding, you know, and like, there was like sparkles Sparks. coming off his yeah. teeth. Like, the, you know, as soon as you met him, you're just floored by who he is. So I bring them in, we're having small talk. And he said, he goes, you know, I'm really excited that I was drafted by the Lakers, but I'm only going to stay here for three years because I, I want to go back home and play for my hometown team in Detroit. <laughs> and I went, excuse me. <laughs> I said, I need to go. I'll be right back. So I ran upstairs and I'm like, dad, you know, I can believe what he said. He said, he's only going to stay for three years. He's, you know, he wants to go back home and play in Detroit. And my dad's like, Jeannie, calm down. He goes, as soon as he puts on a Laker uniform and walks out on that crowd and sees that crowd and hears, hears the, the cheers for him, he goes, he's never going to leave. Never. And he's never left. <laughs> it was exactly never. my dad. He knew he knew that that he would fall in love with LA just as he had fallen in love with LA. So yep. you know, it, it it just it really they were they had such a special relationship and that led to a lot of success. The fact that my dad was a rookie owner and he was a rookie and we won a championship that first year is really truly remarkable. Do you think Magic um, coming out in the draft kind of pushed your father's decision to buy the team knowing that he was coming, or did he not see it that kind of far ahead? He didn't see it that far ahead. I, what, 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 what actually happened was my dad, you know, kind of sticking his toes in the water for sports, bought a team in uh, what was called World Team Tennis, which was, you know, Billie Jean King, Larry King, started this league and my dad owned the LA strings and they were playing at the forum and my dad would go to Laker games. And he noticed that Jack Kent cook, um, the owner of the team then was not attending any games. Well, it turns out what happened was 
Jack had Cook moved to Nevada because he was going through a big expensive divorce and he wanted to establish residency in Nevada so he wouldn't have to pay his ex-wife a large sum of money because the state by state, the divorce laws are different. So my <laughs> opportunity and started flying to Vegas on a regular basis to, to negotiate, to get him to sell the teams. And, um, you know, it, it, you know, my dad, he, he worked, you know, several years to get to that point so that, you know, he convinced him to sell and, and cook at that time owned the Washington NFL team. So, um, you know, he, he had a team in, in another league. So, you know, the timing was right. Yeah. My dad noticed that the, the Lakers were drawing seven or 8,000 people and that, you know, it was because no one was really paying attention and, and, and putting that effort into you know, getting a winning team. Yeah. It's crazy to think that they had Kareem and were only having seven or 8,000 people there. So the Showtime era, which I find fascinating. I mean, I am a Pat Riley fan. Um, I hold those time with the Knicks like very sacred, even though most Knicks fans feel differently. Um, but it's like, I feel like if the Lakers had not gone on to have three more iterations of championship teams, there'd be even more emphasis on just how dominant 80 to 91 was when you talk about the Bulls, the Warriors, because that Laker team to me obviously is as good as any. Um, do you think Pat Riley's kind of place in Laker history because of the Knicks, the Heat, and what's continued on has in some ways got lost in, in just how incredible it was? Yeah, you know, if, you know, but I still think when people hear Pat Riley, they associate him more with the Lakers, even though he was with the Lakers 10 years. And I think he's been with Miami like 20 years. 25, yeah. Right. So it's like, it's, it's funny that it's, you know, but certainly his place in Laker history is, is well earned, even though he wasn't the coach that for that first year. Yep. So, um, you know, I mean, he's, he's very beloved by Laker fans and, you know, I'm, I'm happy for his success, uh, in Miami. I mean, he's just, he really knows, um, how not only to coach a team, but to, to create an environment where players can succeed. So you, you probably won't answer this, but do you think that some of those magic Kareem worthy Byron Scott, Michael Cooper teams. Do you think those could be the best Laker teams ever? Uh, <laughs> I can't answer that. That's like, you know, I, I, know. I mean, I, I get, I get suckered into that. You know, I, I, I listed my top five Lakers or most important Lakers. Oh yeah. I remember that. I remember and that. I, I got in trouble for that. And I, I looked at that question as most important to me, like in, in terms of my career, but, you know, you, 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 there's you can't, you're right. Answer, so I'm not, Don't I'm answer not, that. But definitely, you know, that era, you know, they just, they captured exactly what, you know, my dad wanted Laker basketball to be. So, um, you know, those were, yeah, that's like, they're, they're almost like what was in the business plan, you know, as if your dad was rolling out this new enterprise that will forever be like the, 
the model of what the business plan is. And now it's evolved into different coaches, different stars, but that was the stars were aligned, you know, growing up that Hollywood met the Lakers and vice versa. Magic was this miracle and Kareem, you know, Kareem, I remember Kareem was on different strokes, man. He was, <laughs> Kareem was, Kareem was an, an actor. He was on airplane, airplane. airplane. Yeah. I mean, obviously, um, but that must have been just a wild time, right? Because you're with the organization now. You might not have been working directly with the Lakers, if I remember, but you were working in the family business. And um, was Kareem understanding? It seemed when I was talking to Magic, I keep referencing this cool-ass dinner I had, but it, it, it seemed like Magic and Kareem had this incredible complementary personality and respected it and respected the boundaries um, and that obviously we know now is a challenge, a challenge within a business, a challenge within an organization. Um, was that a special camaraderie and a time where James, you know, Kareem, Magic, could you see just everyone understanding and identifying the roles? Because Kareem is the greatest scorer ever, but those were Magic's teams. You know, from day one, Magic, you know, acknowledged that, that Kareem was the captain that was his name. He called him captain. That was, you know, he deferred to him. It was his team. And, you know, what an athlete Kareem uh, was playing till the age of 42 and, you know, his intellect for the game. Um, but I, I think, you know, his personality type was so different than magic in that, that very first preseason game when we were in San Diego um, playing the Clippers, and we won a game, you know, on a last-minute shot, and Magic ran over to Kareem and hugged him like it was, you know, the NCAA championship. And Kareem just looked at him like, are you kidding me? There's, you know, 82 games every year. Like, this is not <laughs> how we do it. Like, settle down, rookie. Settle so, down, rook. Know, they're, they're just – you know, Magic wears his heart on his sleeve, and Kareem is very stoic and, and yeah. quiet. But what a wonderful human being he is! I feel like Magic's like the the ultimate G. He was like, "Let me call him the captain. I'm just gonna call him the captain. I'm gonna say it's his team." But watch this. I'm Magic. He, he was good. Exactly. Well played, Magic. Um, so Gianni, Gianni's 26, and we work very closely together. And we were talking earlier, and we started talking about when Magic was diagnosed with HIV. And he was five, I think. How old were you? Or not even born. You weren't born yet. Yeah, I was, I was born in 94. No, you weren't even born yet. I'm bugging. Yeah, so this was 91. Yeah. And for me, I remember it um, like the Challenger or Princess Diana, or, or in some ways, like those kind of moments. I remember being with my high school basketball team. I was a freshman on the varsity, Gianni. Um, and I was with the the guys and people were crying. We were, and, and Pat Riley had moved to the Knicks and um, there was like a press conference the Knicks were holding, I remember. It seemed like the absolute end of the world. Does it must, you know, my, my memory of it must pale in comparison to what your memory of it was, but did it feel that way? I mean, this was something we had never even thought about. And then all of a sudden, this was the most famous person in sports. Um, you know, I, I saw my dad cry twice in my life. The first time was when my grandmother passed away day of the press conference when Magic announced his retirement. And it, it's, you know, when you're a kid, you know, seeing your dad cry 
the strongest person in the world you can imagine is so upsetting. And, you know, at that time, HIV was, you know, literally a death sentence and we didn't know how long magic, you know, what was going to happen next. And, you know, uh, he made the right decision um, to retire and, and, and focus on his health. And, um, but, you know, we were all a mess. We were all crying. The strongest person in that room was magic. He, he stood up there and said, I'm going to fight this. I'm going to change things. I'm going to, you know, like he was fearless. And to think about, you know, like we're falling apart and the one that we're crying about is the one comforting us was, you know, really, truly a remarkable uh, thing. And, um, you know, I'm so grateful that he's here and thriving and healthy. And, um, but he, you know, he really did put uh, a face on HIV and, and really, you know, changed the outcome of how it would be studied and, and um, resources that went towards um, finding uh, medication and prevention. And um, what, a, what a leader, what a remarkable human. It's amazing to think if someone was able to do that, that would be their life's accomplishment. And it's one of a multitude of things he's done. Um, it, it, it's interesting because because it wasn't an injury and because it was this, you know, a, a life threatening disease. What people don't talk about is maybe what magic and the Lakers were still going to do as part of that era. Had he not got um, sick because they just, you guys had just lost to the bulls. Um, and Michael was going to keep going, but you guys would have retooled. Um, right. And there would have been, you know, Kareem would have left and, oh, he was gone. You would have retooled. And, had, yeah. We have Vlade Divac as our new yep. And just like you said, we had, you know, Michael Jordan's first championship was Magic's last finals, right? So it was going to be like we would retool over the summer. And then we go back and get our championship back and that, you know, you would have those, you know, that was going to be a, a rivalry, Michael and Magic, right? But then, then Magic suddenly retires and the organization was not prepared for that because you're, you're used to like, you know, planning, you know, the retirement of a star. I'll never forget that in 1985 or 86 when Kareem retired, um, my dad the next season got a new scoreboard with we had never had a video board before so they were just you know that was the hot new thing where the arenas with like a video scoreboard to show replays and you know my dad said you know i waited an extra year to to get the new video board because i knew when kareem left that we would need a new attraction and, you know, a new scoreboard would be a new attraction to get people to come to games. So, you know, like he, he thought about things like that. Well, none of us saw Magic's retirement. I mean, he was only 31 or 32. One, yeah. He had plenty of basketball to go. And, um, you know, it, it just, it was, it was devastating. And, you know, we had kind of, um, 
you know, our, our process, our, uh, you know, philosophy about retiring jerseys is that we retire a number when a player goes into the Hall of Fame. Well, you can't go into the Hall of Fame until you've been retired for at least years, right? Or now it's four. But we, you know, broke our own rule and quickly retired his jersey because we wanted to make sure he would st- still be there to see that happen. I mean, that's oh that, my god, that's crazy! Life price, the like thought process that we were going through, and um, you know, so it was it was difficult. But you know, it, that those early '90s teams, we only missed the playoffs once, which is really a, a testament to um, the franchise, and you know. But, you know, the, the plan was going into 1996, going after a big free agent, and it turned out to be Shaquille O'Neal. And that mm-hmm. the next phase of the organization. So this this that dry that kind of dry spell, um, you know, and like you said, you guys only missed one playoffs, but the bar is so high, and you're coming off of championship after championship. But the dry spell, I I, I don't recall. Was it tough on your dad not making championships? Was that kind of era of '91 to '96 for an organization like yours challenging? Yeah, he, you know, he hated losing. Uh, he, my dad, what it was an emotional uh, wreck after losing uh, in the playoffs. But, you know, really, he, you know, what he taught me is that, you know, it's, it's really hard to win a championship. I mean, things really have to line up, but you have to be competitive. So like a, a, a good year would be, losing in the second round a great year is winning a championship so so you know somewhere between those two things is what your goal is and that you always have to be part of the conversation um you have to be competitive and that's what that's what the brand that he built with the lakers was consistent winning consistent you know always being able to hold your own. And then if everything else, you know, no injuries, you know, things go right, then do you get to that peak of winning a championship? Um, but but he, he, he said, Jeannie, the team always has to be competitive. And I think part of that is transcendent star power. You know, I mean, it's important in New York to have New York type stars. And I can tell you from being in New York, there's a different expectation of what that person is. In LA, it's Hollywood. It's the it's bigger than life. And Shaq, I think even when he was drafted by Orlando, was just like baking in Disney World, getting ready to go to LA. And everybody that knew basketball knew that that's the trajectory that he should and would be on. Um, when you first kind of spent time with Shaq, was there any similarity to what Magic kind of brought to the organization in terms of just like the clouds now open up a bit? Yeah, I mean, you know, for sure it was, we were back on the map. 
we were, you know, landing a free agent like Shaquille O'Neal, just, you know, okay, now, now we, now we have fun again. And, um, you know, but very, I, I would say very different in their approach to the game. Um, you know, Shaq is, you know, just, you know, the, the eighth wonder of the world. And, and, and now I had, you know, started, um, becoming more involved in the basketball side of things. I had run minor league teams, you know, my, I, my dad gave me a roller hockey team an indoor soccer team, you know, anything that you could put at an arena, he made me, you know, that, that was my job. And he actually sent me in, in the mid eighties to, to Russia to negotiate with the cultural ministry to try to bring back the Moscow circus to go on tour. <laughs> oh my God. You know, I mean, he, I mean, I, I was, he just, he, I paid my dues in other words. And then, um, you know, I also, uh, spent five years running the, the arena, which gave me, uh, so much experience that is important for my job today in, in terms of knowing how to run an arena and, and the pitfalls that there might be, um, but anyway, you know, having um, Shaq, I was uh, put in charge of uh, the preseason, um, not scheduling the opponents, but to deciding where we would play. And when you have a player like Shaq, um, what we did was we, it was basically Shaq across America. People were so fascinated at his size and his ability and his athleticism, you know, in with having like size 23 shoes, how did he get up and down the court? How did he, you know, you, you just had to see it for yourself in person. <laughs> so we, we played in, you know, Memphis before they had a team. We played in New Orleans before they had a team. We were the very first uh, event in the Oklahoma City arena that was the kind of power that Shaq had. He, he, he made the Lakers, uh, you know, a national international brand. He, he just, he was just a force to be reckoned with. And, uh, you know, he was, uh, he was a lot of fun too. <laughs> yes. I, so I read that you went to your first board of governors meeting in 1995, right? So, I've, obviously, I feel like it was incredibly thoughtful and strategic of your father to encourage you to see every side of the business, right? Which is a testament to what I said earlier, just about how you know seasoned you are at this and how much you know about the business. And it's like any great restaurant owner who will tell you they washed dishes and folded napkins and worked as a hostess as well as worked in the kitchen. Um, when you walked into that Board of Governors meeting, and this is 1995, did you feel like, oh my God, I'm not like, how am I moving in this room full of vultures? <laughs> you know, I thought, I honestly, I swear to God, I thought going to the, the board of governors meetings, it, it would be just a bunch of people sitting around having cigars, like patting on the back, like this is the greatest business ever. But <laughs> you're right. It, it was a room full of sharks. And, you know, I, I had you know, something that happened, you know, there was in, in the room of like 80 people, there was maybe one other woman. And I had something happen to me at, the, at the, that first meeting 
that made me so self-conscious and so um, like I felt like I I didn't belong and I really questioned, you know, would I be able to, you know, find success or, you know, accomplish what my dad's vision was for me. And, um, you know, it was, it was uh, com completely different than what I thought. And, um, I, but I knew as time went on that um, the older people, the more established ownership would probably think of me as a secretary or, you know, why don't you go get us some coffee or, you know, pat me on the head, whatever. But as time went on, I realized there would be new owners coming in and the more established I became, then I could kind of help <laughs> new people in the room. And, um, you know, that's, that, that's how I could make my mark. That's how I could find my way. And um, now I can say to you that, you know, as I've watched the ownership evolve in this league, we have, uh, you know, some of the, the, the brightest, um, you know, uh, forward thinking, progressive people. And I think that's what makes the NBA the best league in all of professional sports. The, the other owners must have just been so jealous of your dad for so long. And we don't, we don't have to name names. And even that, you don't have to answer that one. But I know they were. I can just imagine. Um, and then here came you, who had the experience, knew what you were talking about, had the right attitude. You're very composed. And then the jealousy probably was just like driven in, in now like frustration. And how do they get everything? These are the Lakers. But the truth was, like I said earlier, like running an operation like that comes with its own dynamics and pitfalls and I, I wonder if the Shaq Kobe relationship was trying for you guys as a family putting aside the business just something that it seemed like your father from afar had this ability which all great entrepreneurs do to say you know what let me fix this like no way I can have a conversation with these two men there's no way we can't fix this um, but it wasn't able to be fixed I mean you guys won at the highest level again like a little bit of a misnomer about the Shaq Kobe era is they still won three and should have won four. Um, but you don't want disharmony within an organization that great. So was that something that kept you guys up at night as a family? Um, well, yes. I mean, like, okay, so now 96, not only do we get Shaq, but Jerry West, like, maneuvers, you know, he we had to trade Vlade Divac, which was – you know, to create the cap space in order to sign Shaq, which fans were upset about because was beloved. And uh, it was a big risk because what if we didn't get Shaq? What if Shaq decided to stay in Orlando and their favorable tax laws there? Um, but, uh, you know, he, he, he maneuvers a trade with Charlotte so that he could get a player that he had his eye on, Kobe Bryant. And, um, you know, the news was all about Shaq. It was Shaq was the star. But, you know, here's a, a young kid. We, you know, to get, I think he was the number eight uh, draft pick, uh, Kobe was. And, you know, because the Lakers, because you're winning, you don't get a top 10 very often. So, you know, here was a kid that we could develop. Um, you know, so now it's 96, 97, 98, and we're not winning. And my dad, you know, okay, we're, we're great because we have Shaq, but like he wanted to win championships. 
And so enter Phil Jackson, because now he had, Phil had sat out the year, the 98-99 year, which was a semi-lockout year um, that we, I think the this, this schedule ended up being about 50 games and the, the Spurs won the championship. Um, Phil sat out that year. And my dad made the decision that he wanted Phil Jackson as the coach. And when he told me that he was going to pursue Phil, I begged him not to. And, and only because I felt that Shaq was the star. You had Kobe, you know, winning the slam dunk contest as a rookie and, you know, coming into his own you know, why would you want to bring in another big personality? Like, wouldn't it be better to have a coach that would, you know, be low key and let the stars be the stars? But my dad said, I don't, he goes, I, I have to win a championship with this, with this team. And when he met with Phil, um, you know, and, and signed Phil to a five-year deal, you know, I, you, you can literally see me at the press conference. There's some footage of me. I'm literally rolling my eyes. At <laughs> it's like, who does this guy think he is? But, um, uh, you know, it, you know, he, my dad tells a story about how he sat down with Phil and he said, look, I'm going to sign you for five years and I expect a championship out of this. And Phil's response was, well, why wouldn't you want five? You know, like, you know, and it took my dad so off guard. But you know, that was my dad. Obviously, again, his intuition was spot on, and Phil was exactly the right coach that you know, yep. uh, get them to where they wanted to go. Right when Phil answered that question, your dad probably thought to himself, "I'm definitely hiring the right man." Right <laughs> right. <now." laughs> He paid him a lot of money. He paid him yes. a lot of money and, you know, and gave him, you know, and again, like I was just rolling my eyes. I didn't meet Phil until probably about three months later. And as soon as I met him, his voice, there was something about him that just really blew me away. And um, I had to like quickly find out like, is he married? What is his situation? And, um, you know, certainly it led to, you know, one of the most important relationships of my life, you know, and, uh, it was, it was nice to get back to winning. That's a, you know, it, it's, um, family and business, right? When you talk about family and business, it's always an interesting topic because in one hand, you know, when you can work with your family and it works, it's really nothing more special than that. But there's also so many stories and and kind of um, things to avoid and people telling you that it can never go right. You seem to have, you know, you lived within these dynamics, right? You have siblings that were uh, positioned with you to be a part of the organization. Your father ran the company. You have this very close relationship with the coach. But it seems like you are able to flawlessly, and you have such a mild manner, and I mean, at least I can see that on this um, pod. Maybe your friend Linda, who's there, can say that you're not always that mild. But um, it seems like it needed that type of personality for someone like you to be able to maybe not have these highs and lows, to kind of be in the moment. And when you really unravel it, it's nothing but 
a stereotype. Like you can have a healthy relationship within an organization. You can work with your siblings or your father. Um, was it something that, you know, your father, let's just say your relationship within with Phil, um, did he get it? Did he understand right away? Like, this is what happens when you're all close within something and you're all wanting something. You're all in the fire together. I mean, that's very normal. Um, you know, when, when there was that spark between Phil and I, you know, he, he asked me to go to dinner with him and I thought to myself, like, you know, would I have dinner with Pat Riley? Would I have dinner with Del Harris? Yeah. You know, like, yeah, that would be normal. A person in my position, I would, you know, know the coach. Maybe but- lunch with Del, lunch with <laughs> Del, dinner with Pat. <laughs> <laughs> well, well it, it, it quickly, we knew that there was something between us, <clears throat> excuse me. And I, I said, you know, Phil, you know, I, I would like to pursue this, but like, I am not going to have an affair with you. I'm not going to do this behind closed doors. If this is something that we're going to do, then it has to come with full disclosure. I have to be able to tell my father and to tell the key people in the organization. Otherwise, we will be compromised and I, I won't do anything to hurt the team. And so when I had to sit down with my dad to let him know that this was that Phil and I were starting this relationship, you know, this, and you know, it's like a couple weeks in and, uh, you know, my dad, and this is so, so exactly who my dad was, you know, I explained to him what was happening and he didn't miss a beat. And he said, I've always thought you should date someone older than you because <laughs> someone older than you would appreciate who you are. And, you know, I mean, right then he gave me the, the validation, the approval and, you know, and because, you know, it wasn't, you know, a secret, it wasn't, uh, it didn't disrupt the organization that people knew, um, you know, everything was out front. And I think that's, I think that's how most companies now are. They don't discourage workplace relationships, but they want full disclosure so that there isn't, um, you know, there isn't, uh, um, you know, harassment, drama, power plays going on, right? Your dad sounds like he's just the most like fabulous man. And it feels like he probably already knew not about Phil, but just knew like when you have, when you were someone that reads people so well, he knew who you should be with. He knew what was going to be right for you. I guarantee you when you left that meeting though, he was like, get Phil Jackson on the goddamn." <laughs> He's fired. Uh, he, he did, you know, they had moments and, you know, they're very different people, both intellectuals, but, you know, Phil really wasn't comfortable, you know, with the, you know, disco pool playing, you know, late night, life like that. And and that was kind of who my dad was. So, so while they were both really smart, you know, readers and intellectuals, they, there was, you know, some things that they, they didn't see eye to eye on. So, yeah. No, my dad did fire Phil once and (laughs) Phil did come back the second time. So it wasn't always perfect. 
Uh, yeah, well, you can't be Dr. Jerry Buss and then have a perfect relationship with someone called the Zen Master. That's mm-hmm. obviously bound to have some issues every once in a while. <laughs> to have that nickname, by the way, is incredible. Zen Master, it's just another level. Well, I just, it's like when, you know, and I, I appreciate you saying that I'm this calm person. And, you know, growing up with my dad, he was a very unemotional un- loser. Right. And so when I started this relationship with Phil and, and got, you know, as time went on, I thought Phil would be the same way, like an emotional loser. So that when, you know, when we would drive home after a loss, I mean, luckily that first year, you know, he won a championship. So there wasn't a lot of losing, but when there was a, a game that, that we lost that we should have won, I, you know, I would sit in the car on the drive home and just be, I wouldn't say a word. And, you know, you know, Phil is like, look, I'm, I'm fine. The, the wins and losses happen on the court. We don't bring them home that, you know, and, and that calm demeanor showed me a, another side to, you know, the perspective of winning and losing. And that it isn't all just by whatever your last game was. This is a journey and you got to see the bigger picture and you, you have to see how those losses help build you towards that end. And so that's why he was such an instrumental person for me. So I get a little bit of my calmness that you so nicely complimented me on. That is, that is from the Zen master. It's, you know, I I think it's always so cool. And then we can move on from Phil is that um, for all of like, you know, he's so smart. He's got such strong position on so many issues. He's well-read. The books he recommends to people are not what you would expect. But at the end of the day, what I always thought that was so cool about him was he was a coach. Like he had all of this, but he was a coach. And that's what I always thought like got lost somehow was he's an amazing teacher and coach. And I would imagine that you guys had a lot of confidence in him or you did during the Kobe and Shaq kind of, you know, dissension, whether it was media, real life, combo of both. Was it hands off for you guys as a family? Let's let coach kind of deal with this. Or did your dad and you feel like you had to kind of get in the middle of that a bit? Um, You know, it was, you know, it was Phil's job to to deal with. And, um, you know, certainly Shaq and Kobe are, you know, two very different styles of, of how they approach the game. And, um, you know, Shaq was just such a physical, uh, you know, he, he, his physicality made him dominate. And Kobe was kind of the opposite. Kobe had to work super hard to, um, you know, to achieve what he wanted to achieve. So the work ethic was just different between the two. And, um, you know, and but, but I remember when when Phil first started his job, and you know, Kobe's twenty years old or twenty one years old. He said, "Gee, there's going to be a day where Kobe is going to, you know, stand up to me and challenge me as authority because he's a young man, and as he as he matures, that is part of the process is to challenge authority." And 
you know, it was, it was pretty much what happened. And, you know, in, in, you know, Phil in basketball wise, you know, when my dad, you know, sat down with Phil at the end of that first five year contract, um, my dad told Phil he was going to trade Shaq. And he said, Phil said, you, you can't trade Shaq. Like he's the most dominant player in the league. And my dad said, well, it won't matter to you because you're not coming back. As well. <laughs> so basically, what difference does it make to you? I'm, I'm putting together the team that I want. And my dad saw in Kobe a return to Showtime, a return to that flashy, you know, um, thrilling type of basketball that he wanted. And my dad went all in on Kobe. And those two championships, there was something about those two teams. I mean, I, I actually, um, I really loved those teams. I always rooted exceptionally hard for Kobe. Wasn't always the biggest Shaq fan, but no one doesn't love Shaq. You know, like I do love Shaq. It's kind of like, come goes without saying. But those two teams felt like this, like we rallied. You know, there were, Powell is lovable, Lamar Odom lovable, Ron Artest, New York guy, loved that. And then Kobe at that point became, it struck a, a universal chord now. It's something changed and everybody absolutely connected and adored him and loved him and grew up with him and felt those two championships, it felt like. Did you feel that way too? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, if people ask me what the most satisfying, you know, all these eras, that to me was the most satisfying. Uh, you know, Phil coming back after being gone for a year and, you know, you know, trying to, you know, build another team. It, it's, there's not too many superstars like Kobe who, who went through a rebuilding era to win on the other side, you know, yeah. with one organization. And, you know, there was a lot of challenges and, um, you know, my brother was beginning to show his influence on the basketball side and, you know, some of the talent that would come in maybe wasn't up to what the Lakers standard would be or what Phil would want in players. Um, and, uh, you know, thankfully the, the trade for Pal Gasol really um, turned things around in order, you know, he was the piece that we needed and he fits so elegantly into the triangle offense. And, you know, I, and I know like the triangle offense, you know, has gotten a, a bad rap over the last few years, but it's, you know, the triangle adapts to whatever the talent that you have, you know, so if you have ta a, the talent that can play a fast paced game, that's what the triangle will do. But the talent that Phil was trying to make work, he had to slow down the game. And I think that was difficult for my dad. Um, you know, he wanted high scoring and fast pace. And certainly as the game has evolved because of analytics and realizing the importance of a three point shot, 
Um, you know, now now players are really good three point shooters. Before the three point line to, to us back in the eighties was like, well, you always to win that game at the end if you hurl a shot and maybe get lucky and you make it now to think that you know the three-point shot is 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 part of the strategy um you know it's, it's yeah just and the that game continues and that, to evolve right yeah and that your center is shooting threes right like could you imagine if like swung out to kareem from three would never have happened um when uh your your father passed and i hate to you know i don't want to get personal but for you, was there something with the Lakers for a second where you maybe questioned if you could do it because this was your guy's thing, you know, and as opposed to something you ever imagined doing without him? Yeah, I mean, you know, his vision, um, the way he set it up was that my brother would run the basketball side and I would run the business side. And, um, you know, I, I expressed my concerns to my dad because my brother and I um, – didn't really see eye to eye on a lot of things. And, but you know, those were my father's wishes. And so we, we tried to make it work. And, you know, my brother could probably explain better what he was trying to accomplish in, in putting together the teams the way he did. Um, but, you know, we, we got away from Laker basketball, which was we went year after year after year not making the playoffs. And, you know, I could just hear my dad's voice telling me, you know, you have to stay competitive. You got to be part of the conversation. And it's okay. You, you might not win every year, but, you know, we, we became irrelevant and we couldn't attract free agents to our team because a free agent, you know, rightfully so, the players have earned their free agency. They want to go where they're going to succeed. And th there was no clear-cut path to what we were doing. And, and watching the way my brother ran the team, he was changing coaches every 18 months. Well, you know, we had great coaches. Mike Brown is a great coach, but he's a defensive-minded coach. And to pivot from him to Mike D'Antoni, who's a very offensive-minded coach, your roster can't shoot. You know, we're, we're under, you know, such yeah. rules that you, you, yeah, you can change coaches, but like the players that you have worked under this system. So we were all over the map and, you know, Phil had, had left to take a job in New York. He wasn't done with basketball and literally the NBA made a sign, a, a, a agreement that he and I would not talk about basketball. So, you know, you know, that was devastating to our relationship. You know, we grew apart. And, you know, one of the things that Phil said to me was, you know, when, you know, you, I, I can't help you if you have these issues with your basketball team. You can't ask me advice. He goes, but you always have Kobe. You know, you've always got Kobe. And, um, you know, as time went on and, and you know, we, we, we had a good business year that when, when Kobe announced his retirement and, you know, that was, you know, I get emotional, but, you know, Kobe asked to meet with me um, in 20, you know, it's the end of 2015. And, um, you know, 
I had never had a meeting alone with Kobe. You know, I wasn't in charge of basketball. I knew Kobe, but this was the first time he'd asked to meet with me alone. And he said, he, he told me that he wanted to retire. He told me how he wanted to do it and make the announcement. And he was very specific. He had a plan and a vision of what he wanted to do, but it had to be kept quiet because he wanted it to be on his terms. And the fact that he trusted me because he knew I could accomplish that for him, that he would be able to make the announcement, um, you know, and what he wanted to do is he wanted it to be just like any ordinary game. It was a, a game on a Sunday against Indiana Pacers. And he wanted everyone in the arena that night to receive this letter announcing his retirement. And, um, you know, and then it would, that's when it would take place. That's when there would be no leaks to the media. And, you know, at that time, then I knew Kobe trusted me and he believed in me. And what a gift he gave us as an organization that we had this whole season to celebrate him. Um, you know, so every, every arena that we went to sold out, even though we were not going to make the playoffs, our team was terrible. And, um, you know, he, you know, I think it even surprised him, the outpouring of love um, that he was given around the league, even in Boston. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, what a, what a great um, celebration we had, and as opposed to him waiting till the end of the season and then saying, I'm not coming back. We wouldn't have had that opportunity. I know what you mean. And I will say that, you know, that, that kind of send off is reserved for, a few people in rare air and when done right it was perfect i remember as a kid kareem's um kind of like uh mart tore around they gave him a rocking chair at the garden i remember this as a kid so i you know it was it it what well, it must have like you said been a pretty important year for the organization bittersweet um in that kobe was retiring um you know i will say and you don't again have to say this that's like my precursor to some of these things your dad probably didn't get that one right as it related to your brother. And that's where family and business, you know, like we said earlier, where it can be a blessing can also at times be a detriment. And, you know, I think that you obviously had to deal with unprecedented kind of maneuvering and decision making. And, you know, I think that side of you, the businesswoman, being able to navigate up this kind of enterprise to where you are now is hard. It's so hard because of the way other people look at you, the way other people want to compete with you, the fact that there wasn't a woman owning an NBA team at the time. There's so many things and you're in LA and you really have done it, like I said before, like with class through and through. And I have a lot of respect for how you handled that situation because it could have been so loud and it could have been so kind of just reflective on people could have made this into some like dynasty type thing you know like the siblings at odds and it it was handled well and you made it work and you turned to to rob and to magic that came on and obviously you know there's that kind of magic um you know impact again but you at that point it felt like we're in charge like as if you weren't already now everyone knew you were in charge and what that meant was not that you were like kicking and screaming 
but that you were now going to do what you felt like was right for this organization, what you feel like your dad would have done. And unfortunately, there was going to be tough decisions along the way. But now, you know, that's what you were used to. You've had loss and you've had these things around you. And when you get a bit more numb to it, it's easier at times to make those kind of tough decisions. Are you happy looking back on it with or happy or, or okay with how you kind of got through the situation with your brother and with Mitch and I know Luke Walton. I mean, it was a lot of family. There's so much family within the Lakers um, into this new era. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, and and to go back to your, you know, uh, what you said about my dad making that, not getting it right. He actually did get it right because what he did was he left me in charge. And I, he gave me, he said, Jeannie, you will have the hammer if you ever need to use it. I hope you don't need to use it but I expect you to, if needed. And I like to say, you know, my dad had his children, but the Lakers were the baby. And my dad put the baby in my arms to take care of. And you know that there's, you know, there's no, you don't ever cross a mother because she's going to protect her child. And he knew, you know, he wanted my brother to be successful in basketball, but, um, you know, it, 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 he just didn't see, I think my brother wanted to do things on his way, as opposed to just doing the way he was taught by my dad. And so, you know, as things are falling apart, like I said, we're, we can attract a free agent. You know, I, we had a family meeting and I said to my brother, you know, you need to tell me when we're going to be back in the playoffs. Because as on the business side, I have to be able to forecast 12 months, 24 months, 36 months out. I said, just tell me when we're going to, I can expect to be back in the playoffs. And he said, you know, first he said a year, no, it'll be three years. So, you know, we shook on it. I said, if, if you're, if you're not successful in three years, then, you know, I'm going to have to make a change. And he said, absolutely. I'd step down if I, if we're not back. And what he did was then he turned around and, and spoke to the media about it. And he gave his timeline to the media. <laughs> so now the media is now, now we're all on this countdown of, you know, we should be back in the playoffs within the three years. And I, I really honestly thought he must know what he's doing. He'll be able to do it. Why else would you say that? Um, but then as, as things were going on and now I don't have Phil to, you know, kind of bounce things off of, and I'm watching what's happening. And, 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 you know, when you, when you're selling the Lakers, you're selling the success and the winning and the commitment to excellence. But it seemed like we were doing the opposite. We were, we were trying to be at the bottom. We were trying to amass draft picks, which, you know, I don't really understand that strategy. My dad never used it and was very successful. So I didn't understand it. Free agents didn't want to come to a place that was clearly burning things to the ground. And, um, you know, finally, you know, Magic Johnson came to me and he said, I just have to talk to you about this because he goes, the Lakers losing affects my life. You know, even though he wasn't part of the organization, he'd say, I'm walking down the street in New York 
and people are yelling at me like, what's wrong with your Lakers? Like, what are you going to do about it, Magic? Come on, it's your, well, you're the Lakers. Why is this happening? And I said, well, tell me what you see. And we had this con conversation in January of 2017. And everything he said i was like that's what i think too like it, it's like we were speaking the same language because we were taught by the same person and so you know as as you know february approached and the trading deadline i was worried that my brother was going to make trades that would put us further down and would take even longer to recover from so i had to swiftly make a decision and Magic agreed to come back and, and head our basketball operations. And um, I had a meeting with Kobe and told him what I was thinking of doing. And Kobe spent two hours going through a strategy for me. Like, you know, here's what, these are the things you've got to think of five steps ahead, Jeannie. This is what's going to happen. This is what's going to come at you. You need to be prepared. It was, like Kobe was such a strategic thinker. And, um, you know, I walked away from that, you know, knowing I'm going in the right direction. So everything had to be done. We had a, a, a timeline that day so that we could do it as quickly as possible and um, let our fans and stakeholders and shareholders and players, coaches know I was now in charge. But my brother, you know, took it to court and, you know, we clearly, you know, the, the, the judge looked at the trust. It was very clearly spelled out. And maybe my brother didn't understand that, that I had the ultimate power because my dad knew ultimately there had to be one person in charge that would be accountable. And he put the baby in my arms and I was going to fight for it and I was going to protect it. And, you know, Magic was the right person to come in and help me. And, um, you know, I'm, I, I don't regret that decision. The only thing I regret is that maybe I, I waited too long and yeah. then had to suffer um, a lot of losses. It's really, um, I really love what you said about how your father said, this is how I want it, but I'm ultimately putting you in charge. Because that's truly what delegating is. You know, he can tell you what he wants to see in the future, but more importantly, wanted to know, make sure that you knew, though, that you had to make the decisions, though, if you needed to quickly pivot. And, you know, I guess in that way, your dad then still never got it wrong. So I take that <laughs> <That's> back. <right. laughs> Pops you. still got it right. Um, so... Before I let you go, obviously the last few years, um, you know, every, the, the, the biggest tragedy of all, and then the world coming to a stop, LeBron coming in, which, you know, is in some ways some divine intervention because only someone with like the shoulders and the mental strength to be able to carry what was needed at that time. Like he was new to the party, but he ultimately had to all of a sudden become a leader for so many of you. And he obviously always rises to that occasion. Um, the last few years, the bubble, AD, now Russell, Rob Palenka, who I think, you know, has done an incredible job. Do you feel this 
not renewed excitement, but this feeling that like now this is your team and you're going to write this next chapter, and you've been a part of all these chapters, but that the next 20 years will be Jeannie Buss's Lakers? Um, you know, I always look at things like, you know, the Lakers are bigger than any one player or any one coach or any one governor. Um, you know, so really what, you know, energizes me is that, you know, my dad's, you know, quest was to, you know, make the Lakers the most winningest team in the NBA. And to think that we are now tied with the Boston Celtics in terms of number of championships and that we have a chance to win number 18. Um, that's what, you know, and, and, you know, my dad even said in conversations, you're going to have to do things your way, Jeannie. The game is going to continue to evolve. The business is go going to evolve. You know, we've got you know, patches on our jerseys. Now we're selling sponsorships on our jerseys. You, you wouldn't have ever thought that would happen under the David Stern era, you know, that, um, and so I like to just think I'm continuing to move things along. And the next person that sits in the seat that I do, I hope they continue the, the legacy, the formula that Dr. Buss, you know, created, which was always pursue winning, always be competitive, always be part of the conversation. And, you know, I'm doing it under the new rules of the CBA and, and, and how things work. And, uh, you know, that's, you know, I don't need to write the genie bus chapter. I'm just continuing what my dad built. Totally. That's amazing. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> um, because you, you are, you know, what I think also goes understated is you're running a $5 billion business. I mean, it's insanely impressive. Uh, kudos to you for that because there's, you know, the, the, the product on the court is the driver, but you still have to operate a $5 billion business. And, um, you know, it's really incredible and you've done an incredible job. And I think that like sports fans have a great deal of respect for you. I know people within the NBA do. I want to make a shout out and I'm going on a limb here. But I bet your mom was an amazing person. My mom, um, I, that's where I get my sweetness from. Like my mom was the sweetest um, person and her laugh, I have her laugh. And uh, so, yeah, I, 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 I'm very, I was very blessed with two great parents. Well, thank you very much. I'm, can we call each other friends now? We're kind of yeah. like friends. I feel like I know. When am, when am I going to run into you? When, when will our paths cross? <sighs> Well, let's, they'll definitely cross in the Staples Center when I'm there. But when I'm in L.A. next, why don't we just cross them? We'll go, we'll have another 6.30 dinner like Magic and I had. I, I, I'm, I like early dinners too, so I'm in. All right, <laughs> perfect. Thank you so much. Good luck this year until at least when you see the Brooklyn Nets. But aside from that, good <laughs> luck to you. Um, and say hi to Linda. I feel like I would love Linda. I don't know why. I just yeah, saw her for one will, second. You will meet her too. All right. Awesome. I will speak to you soon and congrats on your success and just congrats on living your life the way you have. I mean, I love meeting people that I think just do things at the highest level and with class and you've done that over and over again. Thank you. I, I really appreciate the, the, the way you understood like who my dad was and, and having this conversation. It's, it, uh, not too many people get it and I really appreciate it. Reminisce, reminisce.
92 and we are